0: Hello. This is episode -5 from the Rwando podcast. This is another old episode uh from my old podcast with Emily Linden of the Unslept Project. Um the Unslept Project is a book, it's a film, it's a movement. I met Emily when she gave a talk on the Unslept Project uh some time ago in Brooklyn and uh we connected and I and I love what she's doing in uh taking away the sexual stigmas uh basically attacking the word slut and removing slut shaming but more than that deeper than that uh, and at least in my opinion it's deeper is that she's coming at the topic of feminism and gender equality and all that good stuff in a way that doesn't uh shrink femininity which is my main criticism of a lot of the social justice warriors where they're trying to take away everything that makes humans colorful they're trying to make us all black and white and like bland and, and, uh, not fun. And like, that's, and like, anyway, I could go off on that. This I'll probably do another podcast on that topic for sure. Um, but here we, we touch on some of those issues. I love her, what she's doing and that she really embraces, um, sexual polarity while fighting for gender equality. And I think that's so important when it comes to any sort of social justice issue. I mean, I don't really like the term social justice, but what else do we call it? human humanity human rights peace and love throughout the world anyway great episode you should check out her stuff uh, especially if you are into that stuff Uh, this is emily linden episode negative five the unslept project you're listening to the rwando podcast perpetual orgasm infinite play please subscribe on itunes and enjoy the show
1: I started the unslut project a few years ago, almost exactly three years ago, actually, by putting my diary entries from middle school online. And the reason I did that was because I had um, this primary source of what it was like to be labeled a slut starting around age 11. And what it was like to cope with that and the different thoughts that I wrote down, that type of thing, and what the bullying was like day to day. And,
0: and how and, did the, uh, the slut, uh, how did you start becoming made fun of for being a slut? Was there oh, yeah, some so,
1: incident? Yeah, I guess we should back up a, little, a couple yeah. decades. Um, I was like, I mean, first of all, I was the first person in my class to like develop breasts and to start looking more womanly. And um, so I got a lot of attention already, just people noticing me. And then... There was one particular incident where this boy I had liked for a really long time. And when I put my diaries online and in the book now, his name is changed to Zach. And he and his friend, whose name I changed to Matt, invited me over to Matt's house. And they talked me into going, we called it going to third base. Um, I I guess the slang term for it now is fingering. Okay. When I describe it to high school and middle school students, I say I let him put his hands down my pants. And it was like not sexual (laughs) it wasn't something you know now as a sexually active adult I understand what that can feel like and should feel like and we were basically like a step up from playing doctor that afternoon but um he and his friend then went and told our friends and the school and eventually adults in our community knew as well um this rumor that they had started which was that we had actual sexual intercourse that day and since we were 11 it was pretty scandalous uh to other middle school students also high school students gotcha. if that had been the case are yeah. you from and a also small town having sex with other people um yeah you know it's probably about fifteen thousand people gotcha um so it's it, you know it has about i think there are about 600 kids in my high school class if i can remember but um you know so it's not a tiny town yeah. but it's certainly not a city
0: yeah, I, I would imagine it's, this is huge gossip. I, I'm I'm curious about like uh, I mean I don't know if you're still in touch with uh, Zach. I uh, like what was his impulse to share this information? Was he bragging? Was he like tattletaling? Like what made him mention it at all?
1: You know, I had never even thought that he might be kind of tattletaling. It was it was pretty clear at the time that he was bragging, ah. um, the way that he was at least spinning it. But maybe he also kind of felt that I had done something wrong. I'm not really sure what was going through his mind, but. He lost respect for me because of it. And it's so, you know, it's such a, a shitty thing that that happened because even when I'm going back and reading the way I wrote about it in my diary at that time, I had said, oh, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily want to do this this afternoon. And one of my justifications for not wanting to do it was that I didn't want him to then think I was a slut. And I knew that that might be a repercussion. Um,
0: yeah, it's kind of a lose-lose happening. situation. Yeah, exactly.
1: And if I felt, I felt like if I didn't, he would break up with me and he probably would have He did anyway.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It's so interesting that at that age you have this, um, this trope that's been like, I guess like of the oppressed woman since the dawn of time where it's like men want sex so badly, but once they get it, they shame the woman who gave it to them.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's, um, a really common story. And now since I started the Unslept Project, um, I've been collecting kind of anecdotes and hearing from a lot of people about their experiences with slut shaming and sexual bullying. And it's so common today. I mean, it sounds like something that should be relegated to biblical stories or the mythologies that we learn about in high school and, and college classes. But really, it's happening in most of the women I talk to. Honestly, most of the people I talk to have at least some experience with slut shaming and almost all of the women at some point in their life have gone through it.
0: Yeah. It's really curious. I'm curious if, um, like, cause at that age, like, cause I mean, we look at like a construction worker and we can make up all these stories about how he's been conditioned by society or he's full of insecurities or, you know, maybe sexually frustrated and that's why he catcalls or whatever it is. But like an 11 year old kid having the very similar behaviors, I, I wonder like where that comes from. Is it from parents? Is it from TV? Um,
1: it's really interesting. I think it's from everywhere. I mean, and that's, So here's a little tangent. I've been thinking a lot about um, sex ed and how important it is from a young age to expose kids to sex as something that's normal and fun and healthy and appropriate for certain situations. So doing that in age-appropriate ways from an early age is so vital. And I never thought about it much until I started this project. And then, exactly, I realized kids, by the time they get to be pubescent, they already have all these uh, messages that have kind of been solidifying in their minds about what boys need to do and what girls need to do and what we should do when it comes to sex. And, um, you know, as adults, we kind of need to get over our awkwardness and fear of talking about it with kids and come up with ways that we can start conversations about it so that they're not, you know, tormenting each other in these ways. And not just tormenting each other, but so that they're not ashamed of themselves.
0: Yeah, it's making me think of, this is another tangent, but making me think of, like, when I first heard of the concept of homosexuality, like, maybe I was seven or eight, and, like, all the boys would use it, immediately use it as, like, um, an insult to other boys. Like, if, right. uh, if, a, if a guy was even the slightest bit effeminate, or even not, it was just an insult. And um we all, like, we all... Used it as an insult, not because we wanted to sh- like shame that thing or, or shit on that thing, but we didn't want other people to call us gay. So it just became this like cyclical thing. And I've, I've, I've thought looking back on that and how I'm embarrassed of that behavior. Like if I knew about it at a younger age, if it was more normal to me, um, the way that like a man kissing a woman was normal, I probably wouldn't have those prejudices uh, at that age.
1: Yeah. That's one of the things that um, really has bothered me the most about my diaries from that time is the way that I also... And i not to excuse it, but it was pretty unfortunately normalized behavior in the mid nineties to mid two thousands, I guess, in the town where I lived that we would use gay to mean everything from, you know, stupid to silly to, um, gross. And we would not just say in a serious way that a a boy was gay, you know, as if we were accusing him of something that we had learned was wrong, although we had, it was more like, oh, that's gay um, for a class (laughs) or for something that's an inanimate object that clearly cannot be attracted to someone of the same (laughs) sex or opposite sex. And that's, you know, it's really upsetting. That type of language matters. And it it matters so much because then when you... You meet people who identify as gay, and you can't deny that you have all these negative associations, and giving those to kids and kind of not calling them on it or not asking them to think critically about it um, can lead to lifelong homophobia, honestly, and I think even in a lot of gay people it does.
0: Yeah, it's I mean, like I know a lot of gay people use the term gay in the same way that, you know, it's eight uh, year olds, too.
1: Well, nowadays, maybe there's less of a sting to it. Um, yeah, you, know, you can kind of use it ironically, I guess, if you're gay and you feel comfortable doing that. But um, when we were using it, we didn't even know any gay people. And so we didn't have we hadn't thought it through. It was kind of like regurgitating this um, this term that we kind of sensed meant something that was icky and abnormal.
0: Right. So you kind of have stepped in. I mean, it seems from like looking at your website, it seems like you've stepped a little bit into LGBT activism too, because that's a, a major um, area that sexual shaming occurs. Is that right?
1: I wouldn't say that that's what my activism centers on, but there's so many overlaps um, with slut shaming and general sexual shaming and targeted shaming of LGBTQ people that um, that you know i have not. Um, I'm an intersectional feminist. And so that type of thing enrages me as well when I see it. So I'll, I definitely post about it and my social media feed is, you know, full of enraging stories about trans rights being restricted, that type of thing.
0: Yeah. And, and I think, you know, cause like, uh, looking at how parents react, uh, to, uh, the choices of kids. And I think I, I just saw your clip with Amber Rose, uh, speaking about, um, how with any other decision, your parents might back you up, but with like a sexual shaming thing, they say, Oh, what did you do? Like, I, I see that a lot in, um, like the LGBTQ world too, where it's like with anything else, uh, your parents want to back your decision, but with something sexual sex as a, as a general topic is so taboo that if, a if, uh, if a kid shows some sort of like unusual or not uh normative life choice, like being gay, for instance, or not, not choice necessarily, it suddenly becomes this a uh, very difficult thing at home.
1: Yeah. And actually, now that you brought that up, one of the models that I had in mind when I started the onslaught project was the it gets better project, Dan Savage's, um, mostly living on YouTube project where, you know, gay adults will record uh, short little videos explaining that they too were bullied because mm-hmm. they were, Um, LGBTQ in middle school or high school or whatever, and that their life got better. And that idea seems um, like it's just so helpful that you can, because you're being sexually bullied, whether it's because of your orientation or identity or because of a label that's been slapped on you like slut, then you don't necessarily have the support of the adults in your life. If you're living in certain areas of the United States, it's pretty certain that you won't have the support of any adults in your life if you come out as gay. And that can be really isolating. And similarly, with the slut shaming of, of young girls, if you go to your parents, and this was my fear as well, if I went to my parents and told them people at school are calling me a slut, their reaction, I thought, and probably rightly, wouldn't have been... Well, let's talk about what you what you want to be and and what you really are and how you feel about sex and what a slut even means. They wouldn't have necessarily interrogated it that way or been supportive. I think they probably would have said, well, maybe you should reconsider the way you dress when you go to school, or something that put the onus on me to um, come out from underneath that that label. And so,
0: is that you know, what I, your parents said?
1: Uh, well, I didn't tell them oh, okay. specifics. They heard. Um, I should say about my parents, we're great friends now, and they're on board with the project. And um, I talk to them almost every day on the phone, even though we live across the country. Um, and they're really supportive. But when I was growing up, we were growing up in the Boston area, and they were Irish. My dad's Irish Catholic, and my mom is Italian Catholic. And the diaspora of Irish Catholic people and Italian Catholic people in the Boston area is really strong, it's like a strong identity. and. It really um, permeates your sense of self, and um, I think actually the the new movie Spotlight kind of gets into that in a really mm-hmm. good way. I don't know if you've seen that, but no, I haven't. just the way that people who don't even go to church anymore have this like Catholicism, this guilt like deep in their bones for their whole lives. Um, yeah, I was raised Catholic. Like, I, really, I know it. For yeah. Sure. All right. So you. Yeah. <laughs> you <get it. laughs> I need to explain it to you. Um, and so yeah, I still honestly sometimes struggle with that type of thing. But um, my parents were. Free-thinking adults. I mean, they weren't necessarily just kind of by-the-book Catholic or or any other type of dogma, but they had said things to me in the past, and I had like overheard them talking about other women in the news. I overheard the way they talked about Monica Lewinsky when that scandal happened, and I was quite young, but I was old enough to um, absorb those things and to recognize and and know deep you know, in my gut, that they wouldn't be on my side. And I don't think they would have been. I think they would have probably um, victim blamed. And I think that that doesn't make them bad people. I mean, that's a pretty, you know, it's a common knee-jerk reaction for a lot of parents is to, um, first of all, be terrified at the idea that there might be any truth in sexual rumors about their child because the idea that your child might be sexually active is, you know, scary for a lot of people and and also, just new territory. You might not know how to talk about it. And so a common reaction, unless you've trained yourself otherwise, unless you're mentally prepared for it, I think is to, is to blame the child. And even if it doesn't feel cruel or mean, it can just be kind of a subtle implication that it's their fault. I mean, it's really, really harmful. And, um, so yeah, my parents had heard, rumors. Almost all the adults in my town knew, Mm -hmm. um, at least it felt that way. The parents of my friends certainly. And so my mom asked me about it and, um, and I just wouldn't, I mean, it was kind of a non-starter. We wouldn't have a conversation about it at all because I was so, um, I didn't feel like I could trust them, you know?
0: Hmm. so outside of the the shame you may have felt from your parents knowing other people thinking less of you did you feel like any personal guilt like without people knowing like was there any like any of the catholic catholic guilt like ingrained in you that made you feel guilty by yourself
1: you know i didn't feel I'm, I'm hard to remember so that's why actually it's really good that i have this diary as a source because i can read what i wrote the time <laughs> But um, from what I remember and from what I wrote, I didn't feel guilty about the actual act. And actually, you're one of the I think you might be the first person to ask me that question, which is strange. It seems now like a, an obvious one. But, you know, I hadn't um, I, I didn't I liked being kind of sexually um, powerful in some ways. Like I, I noticed that I had this new um, attention that didn't displease me completely. Hmm. You know, and so I, you know, I would masturbate at that age and I would often pray before and after. <laughs> <laughs> you know, for forgiveness. But I didn't it wasn't like the masturbation itself or the sexual contact with this boy were what I was so afraid of or so guilty about. I think I sensed that there wasn't really that much wrong with it. <laughs> um, but I felt guilty because of my reputation. Like I felt that I had lost that purity. And I put, you know, purity firmly within quotation marks that I had thought, you know, defined me. And if I didn't have that, then I was worthless. And I believed that I honestly, um, had internalized that idea that being somehow sexually pure for me and for girls in general was like the determiner or the determining factor of whether or not I was marriageable years down the road and whether or not I was worth being friends with or worth loving. Um, so it wasn't like I went over and over in my head. I shouldn't have let him touch me like that. I shouldn't have, you know, been sexual or whatever. It was more that, um, that people thought of me that way. So I could have been, I mean, I probably would have felt the same shame shame if I hadn't done anything sexual. And that's often the case for girls who are labeled a slut. They feel ashamed of that reputation and that label, um, because of what people, believe about them, regardless of whether or not it's actually based in any truth about their real sexual behavior.
0: Yeah. It's a really interesting thing about like what bullying is and how it affects someone in that, like, really, we just all just want to be accepted. Like who cares about like these morals and and all these things? Like, it sounds like you actually like being like a quote unquote bad girl, uh, from what you're saying. You just didn't want to lose your social standing.
1: Yeah. And I should say, I don't I I don't really know um what the implications are with the quote and you put it in quotes quote unquote bad girl, but I, I wasn't really um doing anything that if I found out my child was doing it would horrify me, if that makes sense. Like I yeah. wasn't taking drugs. I would I think I did a couple of shots a few times like around people I wanted to be cool in front of, but I wasn't um I wasn't acting out as much as one might think given my reputation. And most of that was because I was grounded. Most of the time my parents <laughs> grounded me, um, whenever I lied to them and they found out, which was really often. Um, and so, you know, I would sneak out to like go to the library and stand near boys I thought were cute. <laughs> like, so in a lot of <laughs> ways I was really, you know, I wasn't especially sexually precocious. I just looked different. And, um, you know, I had gone through puberty earlier. So I was like aware of these new sexual feelings. I just didn't really know what to make of them. And I, and I, um, you know, I think the most troubling way that I coped with this, well, one of them was that I cut myself and like used, um, sharp objects to cut the skin on my arms. Mm-hmm. And that has, is really common among girls. And that's been made really clear to me by a lot of the stories that, that preteens and teenagers share through the unslept project, which is surprising to me. I honestly didn't realize that it was such a common way to cope. And, Um, That's upsetting. And the other thing that I'm really ashamed of, honestly, still as an adult, is the way that I turned on other girls um, and sexually bullied other girls. I felt a little bit, I don't, you know, at times it was like defensive of my reputation of a slut. And if I thought other girls were like also trying to be... Um, Sexy that made me feel threatened because I thought all I was was a slut, you know, and they were trying to take that away from me. Mm -hmm. And that was at times kind of what I'm reading into the way I wrote about it in my Mm -hmm. diary. Um, And also at times I, I just had bought into, you know, I just internalized this idea that girls who um, were flirting with boys or who expressed interest in making out with boys and hooking up were you know, attention seekers and should be made fun of and, um, shamed for, for that type of, of behavior.
0: Yeah. Cause like a lot of it, if, if not maybe perhaps most of the slut shaming comes from other women, is that correct?
1: I don't know. Um, if it's most for everyone, for me, it was a mix. Um, and it w- it was differently motivated, I guess, is something to point out. Like I'm a little bit, wary of the assumption that I don't think you're making, but a lot of people I think use to write off slut shaming is that like, oh, it's something that women do to other women because they're jealous. And honestly, that's something that when my mom noticed I was being bullied, even though she didn't know, you know, the reasoning behind it or where it really came from, she knew that my friends had deserted me. She knew I had, you know become isolated in my class. And, um, she would say, Oh, they're just jealous, you know, cause I was a typically pretty young girl. And she would mm-hmm. say, they're jealous of the way you look. They're jealous because boys pay attention to you. You know, don't worry about it. And that I think really, you know, maybe it's part of it to some extent for women, but I think, um, it doesn't really give us that much credit <laughs> for, um, you know, it kind of reduces women to, to children, uh, throughout our lives because we do it to each other as adults as well. So mm-hmm. I, I honestly think it comes more from this, whether or not we acknowledge it, this like really deep seated understanding. That's been something that we've learned from a really young age, which is that like at any point we could be the one who's labeled a slut and it, and there's no way to prevent that. Like it doesn't have anything to do with our behavior. It's just because Someone who wants to bring us down or who is maybe motivated by jealousy, maybe motivated by something even more sinister, wants to um, or maybe just carelessly, honestly, cause us a slut. And it can undermine all of our work achievements. It can undermine our family lives and and really cause a lot of. Um, damage even in adult women's lives. And so when we know that, and when it's this constant threat hanging over us, um, that we might or might not acknowledge, it becomes pretty tempting. And I think, um, even like a really base instinct to, maybe I wouldn't use the word instinct because that implies there's some like biology behind it, but, but there's like this temptation to direct the, the attention elsewhere. And if everyone is looking at her, then for now, at least I'm not the one who's, sexuality or sexual expression is under scrutiny you know
0: yeah and I get this is kind of like the eight-year-old boys calling each other gay so they don't yeah. get gay <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I didn't think of it as a reduction because um, I I might be influenced by the TV I'm watching. I'm binge watching Orange is the New Black right now about the women's prison. Oh my gosh.
1: Don't tell yeah. me about the last, the most recent season. I haven't started oh, yet. I,
0: I'm, only, <laughs> I'm only, I started a week ago. I'm only into season one, but oh, okay. there was something, I'm glad you watch it. So you, um, you might remember in the, like with well, the second episode, Um, they talk about how in women's prisons, like, like. Stabbing and like overt violence isn't as common because women cut each other with, uh, I forget what they said exactly, but with shaming and with words and with social standing. And it made me think about how like, um, it, so to me, it wasn't like a reduction uh, to, to being a child the way that, maybe women shame each other more it was looking at kind of like how throughout history throughout the patriarchal world men have dominated each other through violence whereas women have like uh, female social systems have kind of operated on something way more subtle something that's more emotional than uh swinging an axe at someone's head Uh,
1: i understand yeah i'm glad you explained that that makes a lot of sense
0: yeah, and and I'm I'm still I'm still like curious about that because like when when we think of like women in power, and I'm looking at this very abstractly and like just thinking off the cuff, but like women in power, they it's like this uh, skill that uh, I like quote unquote dominant women have to like I guess uh, get it, get under people's skin perhaps.
1: Right, right. That I do think that's. I mean, I can't really argue with it because, um, it's been pretty clearly demonstrated that that is one of the ways that women, you know, uh, get And it's like, I'm thinking for whatever reason, what comes into my mind is, um, (laughs) French aristocracy in like the mid 18th century. Um, when, you know, that was, which actually seems pretty similar to what middle school is like in terms of like Mm -hmm. cutting people Mm -hmm. down and, and scandal and rumors, that type of thing. And, um, but yeah, when women have real political power, um, I think that, will kind of fall away Um, and I also you know it applies to bullying in in really clear ways which is that when we think about bullying and when traditionally we talk about what bullying looks like and I think you know I, I I hate to generalize but I do think a lot of older men like baby boomer generation don't think of verbal bullying or of social manipulation as bullying they think that bullying looks like you know a scrawny kid being put into a basketball hoop and left there or something (laughs) These images that they see, you know, these physical, physical Mm -hmm. violence. So, um, yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I think that's a really valid point. And so with the word slut to bring it back, I guess a lot of the rumors spreading and diversion of attention away from ourselves can probably be traced to, to women using that instead of one of the ways that men might react to a woman being labeled a slut and and often do, um, which is sexual assault or feeling entitled to her body because, the, you know, the assumption is that she's apparently consented to something once. So now yeah. the consent is ongoing. and, and stoning to, to everyone. Death,
0: as they do in some countries still.
1: Oh, stoning. Exactly. Yeah. Violence. I mean, we. I'm talking about here in the United States, uh, but yeah, around the world, it's even worse. I mean... I don't I don't even know. It's a whole it actually makes me really, <laughs> really frustrated to even think about um, and now that they're being we know about it and how often it happens because there are these like viral videos of have you I mean, I haven't watched any of them. I accidentally saw part of one in my Facebook news feed, which was like doubly upsetting to me because I was like, this is a video of a woman being stoned to death and Facebook is okay with that, wow. but not with like Half of a nipple accidentally being shot. Like, are you kidding me? Um, before they t- they took it down, and actually, I think made news that it was up there for a while. But, but yeah, this. Um, I'm, I'm getting a little bit off topic, and I'm
0: tr- no, I'm totally thinking that okay. it might
1: actually make sense. Um, and like a larger, I mean, this is the most devastating result, right? Killing a woman because of either her actual sexual behavior or because you know there's been some wisp of a rumor spread about her and that she deserves to die for that. And on a much smaller scale and one that might be more relatable to girls growing up in the United States, um, is this, this, this idea that like you can't be anything other than a slut. So like when that translates to this woman needs to be killed because of her dishonor or however you want to put it, um, in countries where that's legal or where laws against it aren't enforced on a on a much smaller and much um more you know a, a more close to home level it happens not death but rapes happen because of that and because women are reduced to often we are reduced to what people say we are or what um you know, men's gut feeling about what we might be kind of trumps our lived experiences. And and that can result in and it does often result in sexual assault and kind of disregard for for women who are thought to be, you know, worthless, whose lives are thought to be dispensable or disposable.
0: Mm. So Outside of I mean perhaps keeping it to America or places where uh, physical violence doesn't occur from this um at what point would you tell like the victim of bullying to just have a thicker skin versus fighting back about it
1: mm, that's another good question, and it's another one that you know I have to have a disclaimer that like i I get frustrated when that's people's initial response, mm-hmm. but it is a nuanced thing, and it is true that you know, there are some things that are disagreements that often get labeled as bullying. (laughs) There are some things, you know, that are one person being honest and perhaps frank about something that the other person's uncomfortable about. And that can be labeled as bullying when I don't think it is. Um, when there is an imbalance of power is, is I, I think the line, like if you are And when we're talking about adults, the power is often obvious in terms of like socioeconomic status, race and sexuality or gender identity, that type of thing. But with kids, it can be kind of arbitrary, like who's in the popular group and and who is a loner for whatever reason. But that's you know, that's a manifestation of power, of social power, even at a young age. And so when there's that imbalance of power, then the slut shaming becomes becomes really, um, I think that's when it crosses line into bullying, where the power imbalance is such that the person who's being bullied doesn't really have a recourse that would make their life more comfortable. Um, so when you, you know, they could ignore it and try to let it roll off their back and, you know, grow a thicker skin, so to speak. Um, but if you are going to school every day and you know that you're like at the very bottom of the totem pole and, And not even that, like if you're just just for a second, like imagine if you're going to school every day, you're spending like the majority of your life sitting and forced to sit among people who hate you and who make it very clear constantly that they hate you. I mean, that does real Long-lasting psychological damage. That is not something I would wish upon any adult I know, even like <laughs> even adults who are trying to take away my rights as, as a woman. I wouldn't wish upon them to be forced to live the majority of their lives surrounded by people who very vocally and openly are disgusted by them or hate them. Um, and for that to happen to a child, I, I don't think that um, you know that it's usually a solution to just kind of encourage them to ignore it or to not let it get to them. But I do think that it's one of the strategies that can be developed, not by simply saying, oh, get over it, grow a thicker skin, but by, and I'm talking about like the adults in their lives, taking initiative to help them redefine themselves. And so that they can find real confidence, not kind of a, a bandaid of just not letting it get to them, but they can actually develop that skill of not letting other people Um, determine how they feel about themselves and one that will be really useful in life as they get older, you know, being able to have a deep seated faith in yourself and a confidence that how other people define you doesn't equal who you are, that type of skill um, can be developed from a young age. And and I think that that's what we, what we owe to those kids who are being bullied. So it's not so much just kind of a dismissive, well, grow a thicker skin, but rather let me help you, um, develop a skill that will allow you to not, you know, as you become an adult, to not let the hurtful words and the, the opinions of other people um, bring you down. And so one of the ways to do that is to encourage middle schoolers and high schoolers who are going through it to get involved in activities that they enjoy doing and that make them feel good about themselves usually because they're good at those activities or, you know, naturally or with practice, they'll become better at them. And then there's something to focus on. There were goals to set and achieve. So when I say activities, I'm talking about like musical instruments or, you know, that you can practice and get and get gradually more and more accomplished at or, um, a sports team that's not affiliated with wherever they're, you know, the school or community where they're being sexually bullied, where they can develop those skills. And and for me, it was musical theater and performing, mm-hmm. and it might be any number of things, but just allowing them to, to redefine themselves according to that and according to who they want to be, um, so, yeah, I'm sorry yeah. that was a bit of a rambling answer, but no, I do no. think that it's important to, yeah, to develop it as a skill rather than just kind of as a as a dismissive, you know, it doesn't really matter because it does matter.
0: Yeah, because in speaking of skills, I, I really love uh, w- what you said about. I forget what you said exactly, but something around how you didn't think you were wrong. Like when I asked you about the guilt question, like you seemed to have some sort of internal compass of like what was okay or not. Like you didn't you didn't take on the the mob's judgment that you were a bad person because of something that happened or because of their judgment. It seemed like you had something internal. And for for my, you know, my brief encounter with you, it seems like that's what probably helped you get through it more than um, more than most people.
1: Yeah, I agree. And it was very lucky. Um, It wasn't something that I did purposefully at the time. I didn't think like, huh, I'm doing pretty well at school. So I'm going to focus on academics and redefine myself that way. Or, you know, I have a, you know, I enjoy singing and I have a musical talent. So I'm going to, you know, enroll myself in voice lessons and, and redefine myself this way. And, and thus, you know, the slut shaming won't bother me. I didn't have a plan like that, but looking back on it. Yeah, I agree. It it was really, a lot of it was my parents' motivation, honestly. And this is why, um, you know, I tried, I tend to give them a break when I look back at this time in my life, because I think they didn't really know what was going on, but they knew that I was upset. And so one of the strategies that they used was to encourage me. And I was lucky because they were, um, financially well enough, off enough to enroll me in voice lessons and to help me pursue, you know, community theater. They had, you know, some time on their hands that they could help me with homework, that type Mm -hmm. of thing that, um, middle-class and upper middle-class kids have that advantage. Um, do you think your ambition
0: was caused by this avoidance of like this slut reputation? Like, did you try harder in school? Do you think perhaps unconsciously?
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that must've been part of it because I would, I mean, honestly, this was in the late nineties, early two thousands. And so we didn't have, um, so I didn't have a cell phone at that time. I was in middle school. I don't know if I would have anyway. Um, although maybe <laughs> I know a lot of middle schoolers today who have cell phones. Yeah, nowadays. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but I didn't, and so and I wasn't allowed to really watch much TV, and I wasn't allowed to do a lot of things. My parents were might be surprising to people who um, read my diary. My parents were pretty strict, and I knew that, and my friends knew that. You know, I wasn't allowed to like watch. PG-13 movies before I turned 13. <laughs> I <like, laughs> lied to them about it, um, which is, again, why I was grounded a lot of the time. But, um, but, yeah, I do think that I was bored. So when I was sitting around being grounded and you know, part of it was being grounded, but also being grounded was in some ways a relief because I knew that people didn't really want to hang out with me anyway, a lot of the time. So I had this excuse, you know, I'm not really being left out. I'm I'm grounded. So I couldn't go anyway to your party, um, that type of thing, but I was by myself a lot. And so I had that time on my hands free of distraction really, um, where I could write in my diary, which in addition to helping me cope, helped me develop writing skills, which, um, helped me, you know, earn, earn my college degree and, and pursue higher education. And now I often write and it's part of my career. And I, I honestly, I wouldn't have written such detailed diary entries if I hadn't been struggling in the way I had. So that's part of it. Definitely. Hmm.
0: hmm. Yeah. So is, uh, is advocacy what you do now? Is this like your, your full-time project?
1: Yeah, it's pretty much full-time. I am Although don't tell my academic advisor that <laughs> I, like, <laughs> I won't send her a link to this podcast, but, um, I'm wrapping up my dissertation. When I started the unslept project, I was just starting to write and had finished my coursework for my PhD in music history. Oh, cool. And yeah, it is cool. I really, I really like it. And so for the past few years, I've had kind of a double life where half the time I'm writing a dissertation on film music and half the time I'm advocating against slut shaming and, and on behalf of girls who are being sexually bullied and, um, and so I've actually really enjoyed that a lot. It's helped me personally. Um, and I think with my emotional health really to be able to take a break from, well, from dissertation writing on the one hand, cause I know that can also be <laughs> insanely draining. And also from, you know, it's a bit of self-care for me to write in a different type of way and to really focus my mind on my academic work. That's not related to, all this suffering that, um, is really clear whenever I, whenever I am dedicated to the unslept project and spending my time with girls who are suffering right now. So, huh. um, so all that is to say my original life plan was to be a professor of music history. And now that I have started the unslept project and throwing myself into it, I'm, I'm finishing up my degree, but I don't think that will steer my life in the future because it just seems like, I mean, I can't imagine abandoning this cause. It's so, it's just so obviously crucial now that I'm, that I've started working on it. Which I guess I have to think. I mean, otherwise I wouldn't be able to do it.
0: Gotcha. Yeah. If you don't mind me asking, is it a way you can support yourself? Because I know a ton of um, advocates who also have to work full time doing something else because it doesn't. It's not necessarily a money
1: making profession. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. It's, it's a feminist issue as well. Honestly, I know that advocates of any gender or people who are activists and dedicate their lives to that would struggle to support themselves. But one of the things that's been hard for me, um, one of these things I've internalized, I guess, is like asking for money for paid speaking engagements, that type of thing. It's almost assumed that because you care about a cause, (laughs) nobody needs to pay you for your time. Uh Um, and so it is a struggle. And now that, you know, just to be frank, now that my book is out, apparently when you have written a book on a topic, you become like legitimate in a way you weren't before, which I I don't necessarily agree with. I don't really think that's fair, but it has made it so that I can um, do speaking engagements at colleges and universities that can pay. And then when I have that money, I can kind of live off it and donate my time. And to what I really care about, you know, where the message needs to be spread honestly on university campuses, it does as well, but in an earlier age for like, um, public and charter schools, middle schools, high schools, that type of thing, who would re- who do really benefit from the message of the Unslut Project, but who can't necessarily
0: huh, that's know, awesome. fund a
1: speaker. Yeah, and I think that it's worked out. You know, I don't feel guilty getting paid by colleges and universities. Right. I think if they're going to pay a speaker, it might as well be me with this message. So, um, yeah, that allows me to then continue to dedicate myself to to younger girls who don't necessarily have the means to, um, who might not stumble upon the message otherwise.
0: Cool. Yeah. Yeah. When I was 23, I wanted to be a youth motivational speaker because I love public speaking and I was going to different uh, charter schools in New York city, but no one had a budget and I realized this is not a way to earn a living, but it, right. it, yeah, but you're right. I mean, like um, writing a book. I mean, it is like a nice, um, way of filtering out people. Who, I mean, if you've written a book, one could presume you actually have You know, intelligent things to say. Even though, of course, it's not really the case, but it's a nice filter.
1: Yeah, I'm thinking of all the people who've written books that (laughs) have very little intelligent things to say. But you're right. Yeah, so I guess for people who were thinking of hiring a speaker, it's like, well, if they've dedicated the time that it takes and like the energy and that it takes to write a book, then then maybe they care enough about this topic to be able to talk about it in a helpful way. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I want to go back to something you mentioned about um, like power dynamics with within adults, but also um, with middle school kids. Um, like you, you mentioned, like the, if the victim of bullying is like low on the totem pole, um, they don't have much to say. But I, I wonder if like if that's just a part of society, because I, I mean, with adults, it's the same case, too. There's, there's bureaucracies and hierarchies of all different sorts, uh, whether structured or implicit. And um And I'm bringing this up because I I recently had a debate with a guy who is um, arguing against hypergamy. Are you familiar with that term?
1: no I don't know the term hypergamy what is it
0: it's um, and this I'm all getting from him I'm not very educated in this uh, topic but it's the idea that um, he was speaking from a man's perspective like the elite quote unquote elite or the alpha males in a a certain environment end up sleeping with um, all of the women and then the beta males don't and like we've heard this in sexual anthropology in different forms but he was arguing against it and why monogamy was so important because then it allows everyone to have a partner and everyone to procreate and he was arguing against the, like uh, this idea of like women being fully sexually expressive and uh, sexually freed because then they'll all gravitate to the the guys at the top of the totem pole and everyone else uh, will be left out. And I was arguing with him, well, that's kind of just how like human behavior is. Like, should we really be doctoring um, people's sexual choices uh, just so it's fair? Uh, well, what do you think about all that?
1: Hmm. Yeah. I am also hesitant. I I tend to agree with you that it's, um, that when we start trying to monitor or decide what's fair in other people's lives because of our personal general sense of what ought to be, then, you know, it's a slippery slope and I I hate that term, but it kind of is, (laughs) (laughs) you know, at that point, like, when do you stop trying to monitor and control people's sexual expression and sex lives? And I also, you know, I don't know if this is necessarily tied into that conversation specifically, but it when we talk about like alpha and beta males, there's, you know, my gut actually kind of wrenches up because it, it reminds me of pickup culture, their pickup artist culture yeah. and, and, you know, MRAs, men's rights activists, that type of thing. And the assumptions that certain qualities in a man make him an alpha in quotes, you know, or, or make him more desirable, to women in general because i think when we make those assumptions regardless of you know whatever extent they might be um biologically true or rooted in some kind of biological truth which is you know i think arguable and it is certainly, it is argued among among um evolutionary biologists that type of thing but it also allows us to like reduce women to wanting all the same thing or being attracted to all the same thing or having the same goals. And it's not, I mean, it's not even like a slippery slope at that point. It already kind of is implicit in the argument that in order to, um, that men must act a certain way. And that's usually like hyper-masculine and, you know, even bordering or, or probably going into toxic masculinity to, um, in order to like win a prize, and that prize is a woman, and mm-hmm. that's you know, of course, the, the language that we use matters, but it's objectifying, and 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 it also is dehumanizing to the women, and you know, takes away from them this agency to want to be sexual for men, and like, why can't we talk about you know alpha females and and, and beta females who are interested in um, if we're talking about males in this way who are just kind of interested in having sex with as many guys as they want to and attracting as many men as they want to. And I think implicit in that assumption is that men are more complicated and have more going on and, and more that goes into their decision-making and that type of thing when choosing a mate where women are kind of like acting on something they don't really understand and can't really control, but just draws them to these like quote unquote bad boys or alpha males. And that's disturbing to me. I mean, I think that when you kind of unpack that and, and, and think about not necessarily it's like theoretical applications, but how it actually plays out in the world when most of the women that I know have encountered these pickup artist types or like wannabe pickup artist types who think that they need to like put us down and take away our self-esteem in order to gain control over us and prove their dominance or whatever. I mean, it's just, it's so backward. And I think it's really, um, regardless of whether, I mean, sometimes it plays out in really obvious ways, but even the um, the suggestions that come with it and the ways that we all kind of absorb those messages in in more subtle ways are really dangerous and, and do shape and lead to violence. I mean, I'm thinking right now of Elliot Roger at UCSB, which is my school, and um, my, you know, was my campus. I was living there at the time, and how he went on a killing spree, motivated, according to his manifesto, by his sense that he was somehow— Wronged by women who didn't want to sleep with him because, you know, his justification was, well, I'm handsome. I come from a wealthy family. I drive a nice car. Um, these women, you know, I am entitled to some attention from these women or I'm entitled to have sex with these women and it's their fault for not understanding that they're stupid sluts. And so I'm going to kill them. And it's so, when it's laid out that way, it seems so obvious, um, that that's like, you know, that's like the Frankenstein's monster of, of our culture, which is Dr. Frankenstein, which is kind of putting together these types of assumptions. And then we produce something that's like this violent um, that can often be a violent manifestation and often in like a white man who feels entitled to these things that he's not getting.
0: Yeah, yeah, the entitlement of men. Oh, really, I mean, I should say this sexual frustration has been a cause of so many problems in society. Um,
1: yeah, I agree. We yeah. <laughs> should not be sexually frustrated. I <laughs> think any steps we can take toward undoing that would be great.
0: Yeah, so on the other side of it, like, say, like, looking at the, the woman's side, and this is not necessarily my opinion, but it's something I've, um, daydreamed about. Like, like, say your project does really well the next five years, and, and slut shaming and, uh, shaming of sexuality in any case is completely eliminated from the earth. What would society look like? Would it would monogamy be out the window? Would everybody be sleeping? Would it would it be total chaos? Because like most theories are that um, society has uh, you know tried to clamp down people's sexual impulses because it's so chaotic and so anti- antithetical to order. I, do, I mean, I, this is of course you know uh, very hyperbolic, but could could society be kind of uh, moved off kilter if everyone was hundred percent free?
1: Hmm. I mean, I think it's certainly a possibility and in a lot of ways, moving society off kilter wouldn't be the worst thing. Um, but you know, I'm a monogamous person and I always have been. And I don't think that's only because of the societal messages that I received. You know, I know that when I have sex with a partner and I believe in my heart that, or whatever, (laughs) I believe in my literal heart, but you know, understand on a deep level that, that he or she and I are only doing this very intimate act that we take seriously with each other. It adds a level of intimacy. I mean, it adds a level of trust that I think is really important to a lot of people. And so even if my husband or in the past, you know, my partners had wanted to have an open relationship, I'm not sure I would have wanted to pursue my end of that. Um, and yeah, it's hard to kind of unravel exactly how much of that is innate in individual people whether they're monogamous or non-monogamous that type of thing and how much of it is learned behavior and adherence to social norms but perhaps in like a few centuries we would see a world in which like the monogamous couple and the nuclear family is not the norm i mean nuclear family is not the norm already but mm-hmm. <laughs> this like ideal that people are are striving for in some general sense um, but not over the I don't think that would happen anytime soon. I mean, it's just so deeply ingrained in like think of how long it's taken to undo the idea that like men own their wives. Right. See, you know, and that's something that should be, you know, quite obvious. And I think so many people enjoy that. Yeah. Um, enjoy having a monogamous sexual relationship that um but I do hope, I honestly do hope, and this is something I kind of a page I've taken out of Dan Savage's book, uh that and then not his actual one of his actual books, but like the, this line that he often repeats that I that I agree with, which is that um, when we if a partner you know sexually cheats on their other partner, that that shouldn't necessarily be like the end of a relationship. And I do think that's a shift that can happen sooner, which is this understanding that a sexual misstep or dishonesty regarding to a sexual encounter doesn't somehow like automatically outweigh years and years and years of a trusting, loving, supportive partnership. I do think that that knee jerk reaction of like, boom, he cheated. Okay. It's over. Yeah. (laughs) We'll, we'll be, we'll be quick to, um, to fall away. That's something that I hope for because it seems it's still pretty normalized, unfortunately, maybe not in the circles that we run with, but (laughs) you know, it's uh it's pretty, I think a common kind of assumption that it's something that destroys everything in a relationship when, when it really ought not to.
0: Yeah, I think sexual norms will change a lot more rapidly. I mean, given that with the internet, everything's changing more rapidly. But with people like you and Dan Savage, um, with the platform of the internet, I think uh, within our lifetime, things will be pretty drastically different. I Um, hope so. Yeah. Um, So has the Unslept Project affected your own dating life? Like, Are you married now?
1: Yeah, I'm I'm married and monogamous. So Mm -hmm. um, when I started the project, I was living with my my who's the man who's now my husband and it didn't affect my dating life and um or it didn't really affect um my actions i guess but it did affect our relationship and like the conversations that we had it has led to a lot of unpacking of our sexual history This looked like a lot of reflection on my past relationships and ways i reacted to you know in, in jealousy situations or um, when partners would try to control me, it's also, and I would, you know, try to control them in certain ways. And I think that has stemmed out a lot of, um, excuse me, it stemmed from a lot of my past experiences related to sexual shame, that type of thing. And also, you know, gone back and reevaluated my sexual experiences and times in my life when I thought I was being completely sexually, um, free, so to speak, or like, Autonomous or making decisions that ought to have been empowering for me oftentimes really weren't, and that's a shame. And I think being able to kind of reevaluate them and think of everything that went into them and how I was coping with past reputations and and past assumptions about who I was that I had internalized um, really affected my relationships as an adult into my 20s. And so even though since starting the Unslut Project, I guess to answer your question, it hasn't really in any way affected my personal sex life or, or, um, partnership, it has allowed me to kind of look back in through a different lens at my, um, my relationships and, and sexual partners leading up to, um, where I am now and kind of, Beginning at middle school and going, uh, you know, through high school, college, that type of thing.
0: Huh. So it's kind of been like therapy for yourself.
1: Yeah, <laughs> actually, I really think it has, and and that's something I didn't really expect. It's been really cathartic.
0: Cool, awesome. Yeah, we, we kind of went off track with like uh, your story, as as predicted. We went on many tangents, <laughs> but um, like uh, briefly, could you get into how you actually formed the Unslut project um, after all those experiences? And I'm curious how you got in touch with McFoley and. Um, what you're where you're at now
1: oh sure yeah i had you know i when i was started the project i was 27 so it had been like 15 years since i stopped um since i ended middle school and i had not really thought about that so much i mean i knew in the back of my mind that i had been labeled a slut and, and my friends from that time who i'm still in touch with knew about it but we had not like Harp on it. I didn't. It didn't haunt me or anything, and it didn't, in ways that I could perceive, really shape who I was in as an adult. And it wasn't until I heard about girls who had committed suicide for going through something similar um, that I felt compelled to do something to participate in the conversation about slut shaming and and how harmful it apparently can still be, um, which was using this primary source I had, my diary, to you know I put it up online on a platform called Wattpad. And it allows for inline comments. So 70% of Wattpad's readership are adolescent girls, international, all over the world. And it was amazing to be able to have my diary online and have these readers commenting on each line with responses to things that I wrote or um, conversations that I had recorded. And and sorting through it alongside them was really not just helpful for me, but really eye-opening about the ways that the problem has changed. So... That was, again, almost three years ago now. And from there, it grew organically. I thought that was all it was going to be. I thought, like, well, my diary's online. That's a weird thing that I've done in life. I'm going to go be a music history professor. <laughs> but instead, um, people started just sending me their stories, like unsolicited. And the movement grew very, very quickly. And it became clear that people were really ready to talk about this. And um, not just on, like, in person to person conversations, although that's sometimes the most helpful, but mainstream media platforms want to talk about it and want to unpack it and try to work against or At least they know that it's a topic that people are interested in hearing about. So that became pretty apparent pretty quickly. And I'm, and I'm glad that that's the case because it's part of my whole, um, understanding of, of slut shaming and sexual shaming in general, that one of the ways to undo it is to, is to talk about it first of all. Um, so that's been great. And then Mick Foley got in touch with me, um, When I was doing a Kickstarter for the documentary film, um, Unsledded Documentary Film, we kickstarted it in August of 2013 for production, and we had like a week to go and didn't look like we were going to make our Kickstarter goal, and if that happens, you don't get any of the money. That's the way the platform works. So I was like panicking, and he called me and said he had seen my project um, because a porn star that he follows on Twitter, Siri, had made a contribution to the Kickstarter and had retweeted it. And so he just happened to see it in his Twitter feed and called me up on the phone. And I didn't know who he was cause I'm not a WWE fan. Um, but I didn't, I didn't recognize his name, but I recognized his photo when I looked him up online and he said, not only was he going to you know contribute as a producer of the film, that he was going to match donations until we met our Kickstarter goal. So, um, it's one of my favorite <laughs> details about the way that film got made that our, A good portion of our of our crowdfunders are just these diehard WWE wrestling fans who are a population that I wouldn't have assumed would be interested in a feminist documentary about slut shaming. But it's really awesome that they are. And that, again, was like a, a really cool realization for me to realize that these this group of people that I had assumptions about the types of people they were and the types of things they were interested in you know, those assumptions weren't necessarily true. And it's a topic that can engage and is a lot of different people and is really important to all types of people.
0: Yeah. It was really incredible when I, when I saw you in, um, next week at the premiere in Brooklyn, um, and like you both sitting next to each other, like you're so from different worlds, but with the same message, it was really awesome.
1: Oh yeah. I'm glad you said that. Cause I didn't, <laughs> that's really true. And it, having making the film and one of the things that people comment about often when they watch the film is like his presence really adds so much, not just because he's like a celebrity in general, but because he's this, um, man's man. I mean, he looks like, um, he's really a, a big guy. He's like over six feet and and pretty takes up a lot of space, you know. And he yeah. kind of has his and wears sweatpants you, and a fanny pack. Yeah, exactly. Wears a <laughs> fanny pack, but he has this presence that kind of makes you and and a specific type of celebrity as a as a wrestler who like uses violence um, to express himself or as his art form or however you want to think about it. Um, Having him be a volunteer at the Rape, Abuse and Incest National Network and having him be on board with the Unslept Project and helping to spread its message in the film sends this message that it's not just about women. It's not just our problem to solve. It's really we want to call in guys and people of all genders who are who are interested in making change, starting with themselves. And having him there and and just on screen makes it a little bit more welcoming and Easy, I think, for, for straight cis guys who might otherwise think it's not really their problem. It invites them in. It makes it easier for them to engage. So I'm glad that I'm so glad, not just because we got the funds to make the film in the first place, but to have him involved because he's, first of all, just a great guy and, and a good friend and also because of the of the weight that his presence lends to the message.
0: Yeah, totally. So I know uh, Unslap Project has many legs right now. How can people get involved or find out more?
1: Well, the website on is the hub and that's where they can, you know, listeners can share their experiences with sexual shaming just by clicking share your story and to access all of the other shared stories, um, that are collected on the website. They can watch the film, which is now on iTunes and on demand, um, or organize a screening in their school or community and the book is also available for purchase on the website so everything you need to know including getting in touch with me for any kind of collaboration or idea or speaking or anything that they would want to um, talk about is is pretty accessible and easy on the website we also use social media a lot i tweet most of the tweets and facebook posts um, on the unslept project page and at unslept project um, are for me directly so i interact with people a lot on social media it's one of the um, main thrust of the project is to use those tools for good rather than for cruelty or, or bullying or tearing people down as as they often are. So connecting on social media is a great way too.
0: awesome. Yeah. I liked your tweet about rap. <laughs> it
1: was at midnight's prompt. I love that show. <laughs> ah,
0: nice. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. This has been awesome. I think what you're doing is awesome. And I really hope we speak again.
1: I hope so too. Thanks for taking the time to talk with me. It's been a great Absolutely. way to start my day.
0: My pleasure. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you want to be a part of the virtual audience for future episodes, make sure to follow me at crowdcast.io slash Rwando. See you next time.